0: Hey everyone, Ashley here, and I'm happy you're here to join us for the last episode of season four of Mentor Chat. Last, but certainly not least, we spoke with Lori Burnett-Levine, the Chief Executive Officer at Mental Health America of Southwestern Pennsylvania. Listen in as we speak with Lori about mental health, the long-term impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, and more. Let's dive right into the conversation.
1: So good afternoon, I'm excited for this episode of mentor chat where we are joined with a special guest from mental health America of Southwestern Pennsylvania. And I am going to let our guests introduce themselves. So um, welcome, Lori, would you please take a moment to introduce yourself and the work that you do at mental health America of Southwestern Pennsylvania.
2: Hi, uh, thank you for having me and inviting me onto your podcast. Um, I am Laurie Boynette Levine. I'm the CEO of Mental Health America of Southwestern Pennsylvania. And uh, we say that we educate, advocate and serve. And what I mean by that is we have programs like this that educate the public about mental health, the stigma surrounding mental illness and ways to seek help and ways to recognize signs and symptoms of mental illness. Uh, We advocate in that we provide systems advocacy, advocating for legislation that promotes and protects uh, mental health services, as well as individual advocacy for people who live uh, in southwestern Pennsylvania and might be having trouble with resources. And the resources don't have to be mental health resources. It can be problems with a landlord. It can be Uh, problems that they're having with family members, seeking advice about different situations. And we have uh, specific staff that serve Westmoreland County, but we also provide referrals to other counties as well. And we have an advocate in Indiana Armstrong, and we employ the advocates at Torrance State Mental Hospital as well. They're external advocates that are, again, employed by us. And we have some supportive services as well, We have some programs now um, that are dedicated, again, to Westmoreland County, and they are uh, care managers that help people with what are called the social determinants of health, the things that all of us need to be healthy. And if we have good mental health, if we have good physical health and we have good mental health and vice versa, and we try to strive to create that connection and help the public to understand how the two are interchangeable, that we do have health from the neck up as well as from the neck down. Uh, So those are some of the services that we provide uh, just very basically our website is mhaswpa.org, And I'll repeat that later on. And another program that we also do is a lot of suicide awareness. And we work very closely with a group called the Ray of Hope Suicide Awareness and Prevention Task Force. And we also, that is in Westmoreland County. And we work with Allegheny County, which is the safe task force, suicide awareness for everyone. So we're working with those two task forces to create greater awareness about suicide. So those are some of the things that we do. I myself, am a licensed social worker. I've been in the field for decades. And I believe very strongly that everybody should have, everybody has a right to live a healthy life and have wellness. And so it's are the responsibility of our agency to assist people to be able to get there as well as to spread education in the community?
0: Thanks, Lori for sharing a little bit about that and about yourself. So I know in conversations just that we've had both in the podcast and in our work, um it's been pretty clear to us that the pandemic um, is still having it's having a really big impact on adults and like young people. And we've tried to respond and like our work the best way that we can. But I'm wondering how has that impacted your services and uh, the people that you work with?
2: It's created a greater need for our services. Um, We definitely saw that the pandemic, you know, was going to actually create a mental health pandemic within the physical health pandemic. We knew that was coming because that's typically what happens um, with crises, trauma, these kinds of events. And it often doesn't happen while the person is going through the trauma, but it happens afterwards. And I think that's what we're seeing. And uh, it's particularly hit our youth the hardest. And so we've seen increase in um, people requesting services. Uh, We've seen increases in suicidal ideation, and it's not just us. This is the Center for Disease Control has done studies about this nationally and, and we're, you know, you'll hear this very commonly we're in a mental health crisis in our country. And now we have the financial, you know, crisis that impacts people's mental health, the price of goods and services, things like food that everybody needs to have um, are increasing. And this is creating greater strain and stress for people we saw that before the pandemic, the suicide rates had been steadily climbing and a couple years before the pandemic, they started leveling off. And now we believe that they're climbing again. Uh, the CDC found like a year ago that young girls were having more visits to emergency rooms with suicidal ideation. And when this, when there have been studies that have been done, more and more youth are reporting thoughts of suicide. Of wanting to hurt themselves, signs and symptoms of depression have increased, some say 30 to 40% in our youth. And then you couple that with the workforce challenges that everyone has been experiencing, but have particularly hit hard the human services. And we've seen a lot of people resigning um, their positions. Some of them have been leaving the human services to go to work for fast food companies. Um, You know, big box stores just getting out because of the stress of providing services and the underfunding of those services consistently and um, the lack of attention that are paid to those services so that they were feeling the stress before the pandemic and they've had their own stress, they've had their own losses. And now, you know, so we see them leaving and as they leave, that creates greater stress on the people left behind. We've seen residential programs have had to close because they don't have enough staff to, you know, staff the program. So we're really, you know, parents are recognizing signs and symptoms of mental health issues in the youth and they have nowhere to refer them to, or if they do, there's waiting lists that could be a couple months long. And you know what, you know, when you have a child and it's gotten to the point where you recognize that they're having mental health symptomatology or they come to you and they say, like, I'm thinking about hurting myself. I'm thinking about ending my life. And you try to call and get an appointment and you can't. How stressful that could be. And so we see a lot of parents taking their children to emergency rooms and then we see greater lengths of stays in emergency rooms and difficulty finding beds in some of the hospitals. the beds but they don't have the staff to staff the beds so we're really seeing a, a like it's a perfect storm on both ends and our group in terms of systems advocacy has worked really hard to try to educate the state legislature who funds a lot of these programs about the importance of the safety net and having these kinds of programs and once again in the state budget they did not increase mental health services they the governor did appoint a commission to study this and the commission put forth its study, um, but there's no legislation that has been passed in order to make any movement on the study. And they don't expect, and it's one year funding, and they don't expect that any legislation will come out until after the first of the year. So then you'll have six months to spend one year's worth of funding. And some of that funding is for workforce challenges, But if you only have six months to spend it, is that really going to be able to make an impact? And it's $100 million in the state of Pennsylvania, and there's 67 counties. So we're talking at most $1.5 million probably per county to be spent in six months. And it's just really um, not the best way to go about things. So those are some of the issues that are facing mental health services. I can talk about you know telepsych and how that has really helped during the pandemic, especially more for adults. They found that having the ability to uh, be able to have remote appointments and not have to come into the office uh, has really telemedicine has really helped both in the physical health side and the mental health side. Because for people to they have trouble sometimes with transportation or they have to take off of work to travel to get to their appointment, or they can't take off of work and so they can't go to an appointment. So this way, they if they have an appointment that they can log into remotely, it's caused a greater increase in people keeping their appointments and decrease the number of people that have to cancel their appointments. And so that's been very helpful. Um, the legislation was just passed to extend the ability to have telephone only appointments. And that's good, too, because not everybody has Internet access. And you see to, you know, that sometimes people like we had today um, making a connection. And so that being able to just call um, really is very, very helpful. And to be able to do supervision over the phone is also very helpful. And I think the pandemic, that's if there's one silver lining, it's been like Zoom and Teams meetings and all those other platforms that have helped us to be able to do things remotely because it's a great time saver and it's allowed us to be more productive as professionals, but it's also been helpful for the people using the service. For children, they found that it's harder for them to be engaged over a computer or over a telephone, that face-to-face still works better, although it's not always possible. You know, The schools are overwhelmed. The schools are finding now that they're back in in face-to-face mode, that more and more children are experiencing mental health problems, that they're And I'm sure you've seen this, too, that they're delayed and their, you know, ability to bounce back into the in-person setting. We're seeing an increase of the flu, new viruses in addition to, to, you know, the pandemic, in addition to new strains of COVID. And so it's a lot for families and children to deal with, plus the regular colds and, you know, viruses that just circulate and we've seen that a lot of um, businesses have allowed their staff some flexibility in working remotely. And that's been very helpful. It's helpful to the parents because if their child's sick, they don't have to miss work. They can still log in remotely. So that there are some things that have happened during the pandemic that have been, those are some of the positive things, but the toll on both adult and children mental illness has been uh, tremendous. And again, we've seen suicide rates rise and we've seen that um, the suicide prevention programs um, have been disproportionate and where they've had an impact. So, for example, in rural populations, there's underserved populations like rural populations, populations of color, populations with poverty um, that those people have had less access to the services. And sometimes it's because of transportation, location of the services, cultural sensitivity. Uh, and they're real, the mental health system is really trying to address that. And they're very much aware of that. And so they're trying to do more outreach into the communities, especially the communities that I mentioned, the LGBTQ communities are at higher risk of suicide. Um, And there's a mistrust of the mental health system, you know, and how are they going to help me or how is this person going to be able to help me? And along with the stigmatization about mental illness is a character flaw. It's not an illness. Like if you if you like broke your toe, you tell people, oh, I broke my toe. But if you're feeling depressed, like you tell no one Um, because people feel like it means they failed if they have a mental health problem. So we really try to get the word out that it's not a character flaw, that mental illness is really something that happens. And if you have depression, it doesn't mean like this is going to be with you for the rest of your life. It could, but there's lots of medications that are out there that are able to treat this. And just like if you had diabetes or you had a thyroid problem and you would take medication, like you're taking medication for this. I think You know a lot of famous people have come out now and are talking about their mental health issues movie stars are talking about it athletes are talking about it and so that's very helpful because people saw even during the olympics some of the potential gold medal winners took a break because of the stress and their mental health and so it's gotten a lot more public attention but i don't think we're there yet i don't think people really feel comfortable talking about mental health problems. And so one of the messages that we put out there is it's okay not to be okay. But like not everyone has to be like picture perfect all the time. And sometimes you might be having issues and you should have a trusted person that you could be able to talk to. That's very important. It doesn't even have to be professional. Just having someone that you trust. And for for children, because this is the mentoring partnership, having that one special person in their life has shown to make a difference and that the people need that one person that is there for them no matter what. And it doesn't have to be a family member. It can be a friend. It can be a mentor. And just knowing that they have someone they can trust, that they can go to and share what's in their heart um, has really made a tremendous difference in people's mental health in terms of their resilience, they be able to bounce back um, their self-confidence, uh, it's really, really very critical. So I commend the mentoring partnership.
1: Oh, Lori, thank you for that. Um, we appreciate that because, and I, I think what you did is set up, I had a question, um, that I wanted to ask as you were sharing and that leads right into that, but thank you for just being able to describe the, the magnitude that the mental health crisis, the impact that it has, you know, following the pandemic um i appreciate all that you shared i know going into the the pandemic i was so worried about like the aftermath but did i did not know what that was but i was like this there's going to be so much more when everyone can you know go back to work if you will etc and the the man, you just like described this whole rippling effect, right? Of um, the impacts in the workforce and um, getting access to resources, et cetera. So thank you for doing that. Hello,
3: I'm Bridget Wissinger from the Mentoring Partnership. Do you work or volunteer for a youth mentoring program? Are you ready to continue your mentoring program's commitment to quality mentoring? If you answered yes to either of those questions, then I have great news for you. The Mentoring Partnership offers support to programs just like yours through no-cost technical assistance. Through the National Mentoring Resource Center, the Mentoring Partnership is able to help support eligible youth mentoring programs build their capacity and improve the quality of mentoring to their young people at no cost. You might need support with training your mentors or your mentees. Maybe evaluation surveys could help you understand and demonstrate the impact you're having on young people and you'd like help creating them. Or maybe you'd like to better understand the best practices of youth mentoring according to evidence and research. We can help you with all of that. Just last year, we provided over 700 hours of no-cost support to programs just like yours. If you're interested in receiving technical assistance for your program, or you'd like to know more, please reach out. You can contact one of Mentor Chat's very own hosts, Ashley Wineland, at A-W-I-N-E-L-A-N-D at mentoringpittsburgh.org, or find out more on our website at www.mentoringpittsburgh.org. You can search NMRC on our website. We hope to work with you soon.
1: Thank you. I was going to ask you, so maybe you, and you addressed it some, but maybe can further expand on, um, like at the mentoring partnership, as you said, like our work is centered around relationships, specifically for young people. Um, But we've been talking a lot about how adults um, get support so that they can model that support for young people. It's hard to model wellness or Be that trusted, caring adult when you when you need support as well. Right. So just wanting to make sure people get the support they need, adults and youth alike, um, and that we're reducing the stigmas, like you said, so people can ask for help um, so that I mean, essentially, we're all in this together and we Mm -hmm. believe that relationships is a big proponent of, you know, mental health and well-being, whether it's preventative or whether it helps with, you know, early intervention, etc. But can you talk a little bit more about like what you've seen in your work with regard to relationships specifically and how that has impacted not only youth, I mean, that's our primary audience, but youth and adults alike by having that just kind of, like you said, at least one caring adult in their
2: life. Well, you know, they talk about when you're on an airplane, put your oxygen mask on first so you can help other people. And I think that's true about mental health. You have to take care of your own mental health so that you can, um, if you have other people that you're caretaking for, so that you can be in a better position to take care of them, whether it's an older family member, whether it's a child, um, you know, anybody, for you to be able to interact, even. You know, in your relationship with your significant other, in order for you, you have to, if you're depressed or anxious, uh, not able to sleep, you know, all those kinds of things, then you're going to have, it's going to impact how you relate to others. So um, there 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 are some evidence-based studies that talk about the things that you can do, simple things to try to help with your mental health. One is having a significant relationship with someone that you can talk to. Um, Things are like trying to eat well, like even when you're depressed, sometimes, you know, you might want to overeat, eat snacks, whatever, you know, or not eat at all. Some people get so depressed that they can't eat. So making sure that they're trying the best they can to eat a balanced diet. Um, Other things I mentioned, sleep, you know, being able to sleep. Some people find meditation helpful, some people find keeping a journal helpful. Uh, practicing gratitude, you know, looking at ways, trying to reframe how you see the world. In other words, like you know, and instead of saying the glass is half empty, try to find ways where the glass is half full. And lo- reframing how you look at something. Maybe there's an upcoming event that you're really anxious about. Well, what if you look at it? This will be an adventure for me. This could be a learning experience for me. You know, what can I get out of this that's positive? trying to reframe those things. So there are simple things. The exercise, they found that exercise is really helpful for your mental health because your body produces chemicals when you exercise that also are good brain chemicals. And so um, sometimes when people get anxious, they get a stomach ache and they don't understand why. But the same chemicals are in your stomach that are in your brain. There's actually more in your stomach than there are in your brain. So by you're helping your physical health, like once again, you're helping your mental health. So exercise is another key component for good mental health. And I'm not saying that any of these replace if you need to see a professional, but if you're experiencing mental health issues or while you're waiting, those are some things that you can do to help help yourself. And so also, you know, seeing your primary care physician, some primary care physicians do prescribe medications to help with your mental health um, while, you, while you're waiting. So it doesn't always have to be, um, you know, getting to see a therapist and while you're waiting. You might be able to get to see your primary care physician. And they're not the specialist. I mean, they sometimes feel under equipped to deal with mental health problems, but they may have some things that can help temporarily until or a medicine that you can start because a lot of the, the medications take, a month in your system for you to be able to feel a difference. And so if it takes you two months to see someone, then it's going to take you more time to get in to see a doctor and then more time to get the medicine and then more time for the medicine to really take effect. So those are really, you know, important things. And I think in terms of young people, you know, um, you know, at school, if there's someone that they can talk with um, if they're involved in the mentoring you know, partnership. Great. Um, But is there, you know, the school systems are feeling overwhelmed because they're seeing more and more students that are having mental health problems, but schools should have what's called an SAP program, which is a program inside the school that helps them to identify children that are having mental health issues. And so that's at least a start is for students to try to reach out to someone in the school um, and, and let them know that they're having a problem. I think that can be helpful. You know, teachers should understand the significant role that they play in the lives of their students. Like sometimes a student can't talk to anyone, but they feel like they can talk to their teacher. And so that that bond, that connection is really very important. It could be a club leader. It could be a coach on an athletic team. Um, There's many people that can play that significant role in the life of a young person that they feel like it's a safe space. It's a safe person that they can go to, 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 to say whatever they have to say, what's in their heart.
0: And I know in our uh, youth mental health first aid training, we talk with adults a lot about how to be that person and like how to recognize and, um, just, it can be intimidating as an adult when a young person comes to you with some of these things where they exhibit, um, maybe some flags, but there, I mean, there are resources to like help, um, know what to do. And I know as adults, like we're not alone in supporting young people either. Like there are people to help. And, um, I know in talking about the youth mental health first aid training, Michelle had shared a statistic that I know you had talked about suicide and how it was growing. Um, unfortunately, but the stat that Michelle shared showed that, suicide is the second leading cause of death um, of people ages 10 to 34, which is terrible. I mean I I mean I was stunned when I heard that statistic and in our youth mental health first aid training, we talk some about suicide as a crisis situation and um, some things to do when a young person may disclose um, that they're having um, like thoughts of hurting themselves but we don't really take like a deep dive into the conversation. And I know that Mental Health America aims to advocate, educate and serve. Um, So can you talk a little bit about what that means and how it relates to suicide awareness and prevention?
2: We have a a program that we really um, respect. It's a national program, it's evidence-based. It's called QPR, Question, Persuade and Refer. And both suicide task forces use this. It's, you know, widely available in both counties. And what it is, is it's question, persuade, and refer. And so it's it's not a long training program. And it's meant, it's a couple hours. It's meant for the general community. But it's to make people feel, help make people feel comfortable in talking about suicide. So that when you see uh, anyone who you think might be exhibiting those signs and symptoms, being comfortable and saying, are you thinking about killing yourself? Because a lot of people think that if they ask the question, that it's going to put the idea in the person's mind. But the research shows that it's already there. And by you asking that question, that is giving them permission. It's saying it's okay to not be okay. It's giving them permission to talk about what's on their mind and being non-judgmental about it not going oh, oh oh my god don't do that you know not not having that kind of emotional reaction giving them permission being a safe space for that person to talk about that finding out if they have a plan available to them um do they have a plan and is that plan available to them so for example if someone says like i'm going to jump off a bridge and they live like in I don't know, Las Vegas, where there's like no bridges, (laughs) you know, that's that, you know, there's no water, you know, that that's, that's then that's not as imminent as if you're living in Pittsburgh, where there's like bridges everywhere. And there's some bridges that are famously, unfortunately known for people, you know, using those bridges to complete suicide. And they shy away from the term commit, because commit is like you commit a crime. Um, where they want to show that like suicide is a brain disease. It's, it goes hand in hand with mental illness. So you die by suicide, die from suicide, um, as opposed to committing suicide because language matters. And so helping people, I think that program is a really good program. And helping, even if you can't take advantage of that program, helping people to understand what the signs and symptoms are. Often people say like, I was so surprised they were acting so normal. They were acting so happy. And sometimes that's because they have a plan and they know that they're going to execute this plan and that they know it's going to end. And so what we say is that suicide is a permanent solution to what could be a temporary problem. And that at the time the person's going through that, all they see is the problem and they don't feel like there's an end. and often what we find is that people who die from suicide, they want the problem to end. They don't want their life to end and they don't see a way out. They feel trapped. And the only way that they feel out is, is suicide. And so helping people to understand that this is temporary, that there is help. There is hope. Let me get you to some help. Um, There's a national crisis line. They just changed their number to 988 to make it easier for people to remember uh, from this long, you know, toll free number, uh, that will put you in touch with someone close to your local community. Some communities have direct crisis lines. Um, in Pittsburgh, there's Crisis Resolve. In um, Westmoreland County, has a, has a suicide hotline. But also, there's this nine eight eight number. There's uh, 741-741 is a national text line for people and often you feel more comfortable texting and there'll be somebody there available to talk with you. I wanted to mention that with 988, they have a special line for veterans. So they say, if you're a veteran, I think it's press one and then you'll be in touch with another veteran who will talk with you. So there's there's the Trevor project, which is out there which is also for LGBTQ youth. um, And that's been very, very successful so that there's a lot of resources that are out there for people to be able to call and to encourage people to call. But if you are with someone that you think suicide is very eminent for them, you know, take them to an emergency room. Don't just say, go ahead, you, know, you should do this. Make sure that they do it, stay with them. Um, or if they're gonna call a crisis line, stay with them when they call the crisis line to make sure that that connection happens. Um, so that there's not that opportunity, that chance um, that that's not going to happen. You know, we tell people that if there's guns in the house to remove them, often people say, well, my gun is locked up. They won't be able to get to it. But I, we have found, unfortunately, that where there's a will, there's a way. That um, parents sometimes think their children don't know where the bullets are or they don't know where the key is. You know, unfortunately, they know. Um, family, friends, things like that. So uh, it's not an end. I'm not making any, you know, gun rights statement. I'm just saying that if you know that there's someone in your household that is thinking about suicide, you want to make sure that pills and guns are not available to them. And, you know, we didn't talk about substance use, but substance use is very high right now. And there were a lot more overdoses during the pandemic. Really, they rose dramatically. and um you know, we want to stress the importance of keeping your pills locked up and locked away. Uh, if there's someone in your household that you think might be at risk, uh, you know, of substance use, overuse. Um, There's drugs on the street that are so readily available. And they're not always what you think they are. Like they're laced with fentanyl. There's these pills out there that look like candy. So you just have to be very vigilant about, you know, Sometimes people use others. There's been a tremendous increase in the use of alcohol during the pandemic, and alcoholism. And people don't think of alcohol as a drug, but it is. And so that it's a depress it's a depressant. So actually, people think they're drinking to escape the reality when it actually depresses their their whole system, including their mind. And so um, we just need to be more and more aware of these things and be more vigilant. And that's why you have to put your own gas mask on first so that you can help the person that you're, you know, caring for, um, be healthy. So the parents aren't so immersed in their own issues that they don't see that their child is using, um, or that their child is depressed also. Yeah. Thank you so much for that.
1: Uh, Lori, I think that's the, that's that, stat that, the second leading cause of death of people ages 10 to 34 um, is suicide is one of the major factors in us, you know, having the conversation about the mental health crisis, you know, dedicating this season to youth mental health specifically, but mental health overall, because we want to create awareness. And most of the programs that we work with in our network are, working with middle schoolers essentially from that age 10 or you know matching caring adults with young pe- people as young as you know 10 years old so the more we are aware and the more we can increase our noticing skills help us as caring adults be better equipped to have these conversations to ask questions to help reduce stigma etc so thank you for for bringing up you know, the, the training that you all offer, the QPR training and the other resources like the suicide prevention line, etc. cetera. Um, before we wrap up today's discussion, are there other resources or recommendations that you want to share uh, with our listeners, knowing our primary audience are those who um, really parents and young people, um, but also who have um, investment in um, mentoring relationships for young people. Um, do you have any uh, resources or recommendations that you want to share that would um, help support the overall health and well-being of young people um, that you may have not already shared?
2: I really like that phrase, noticing skills. You know, I think that's great, um, you know, to try to heighten your noticing skills uh, for the, especially with the Citizens a Youth program for the youth around you. Um, because sometimes youth react in a different way than adults because they can't express what they're feeling. They can't always put words to their feelings. I was once at a a workshop actually run by Lady Gaga's mother. And Lady Gaga has a lot of programs for people um, about bullying and mental health. And uh, I think it's called Born This Way. and she brought with her a young woman who was college age and like after all these decades I had like an aha moment and the aha moment is that you know we talk to youth about these feelings but sometimes you know and it's important to have good mental health and we say all the right things but sometimes they can't see the forest from their trees like they don't realize that the, what they're experiencing are the symptoms of having a mental health problem. Like sometimes they think depression is like, I'm going to sleep all the time and just be sitting there. When sometimes depression presents itself with someone who's like aggressive, someone who is argumentative, someone who's feeling angry, and they may not realize, wow, I'm feeling angry all the time you know, what's bothering me. And then when they go back to like, what's bothering them, they realize, wow, I'm, I experienced a trauma or I'm really upset. I'm really upset about something. And that's why I'm acting this way. Or some people may say, well, I'm not sleeping all the time. I'm awake. You know, well, maybe waking and not sleeping enough is a sign that something's going on with you. So helping, um, youth to to recognize this, I think, is important that they don't often understand. They know that you can read about it, and reading about it is one thing, but putting that to yourself, that, oh, this is, this is what I'm experiencing. I never realized that this is what I'm experiencing. You know, loneliness and isolation is at an all-time high. And some people attribute that to social media, and we didn't talk about that. But sometimes... It's important to limit your social media exposure, that more and more youth are spending time, everyone on social media, and so they're having less human interactions. And so what they're seeing on social media isn't always true. It's a representation of people, what they want you to see. There's a lot of bullying that occurs, you know, online. And so for whatever reason, people feel like they can say more online than they can say in person. And then for youth, you know, online doesn't stop, it's 24 seven, like they can wake up at three o'clock in the morning and turn on their, you know, phone or whatever, and somebody can be bullying them at three o'clock in the morning. So it's not, you know, it's not just a, (laughs) it's not just a daylight when I'm at school thing anymore. It's a, it's a constant thing. And so being aware of that, knowing when to take a break, the news, the news cycle, Um, The violence that that people are seeing on television, there's been a tremendous amount of shootings and, you know, in the area lately, young people being the perpetrators, young people being the victims, Uh, how many youth know these victims and how they're impacted by that. You mentioned the ripple effect so that there's ways to try to just turn it off. You know, turn it off for a while, block, you know, block it out. And that's important too, to to limit your exposure to those kinds of things. There's a really good film for parents. It's on PBS and it's called you can find it on their website. It's called Hiding in Plain Sight. I don't think this will air in time, but there's going to be showing a brief showing of part of the film um, at Seton Hill University on uh, this Thursday night with a panel discussion um, with professionals and youth, but it it was a really good film, and it interviews young people and talks about the things that they're going through. And it's it's um the film in its entirety is two parts, each or two hours, so it's really long. Um, the second part is a little easier to watch because it's the part that focuses more on hope. Um, but one of the one of the young people said, "When I'm mad on the outside." i'm mad on the inside and i thought that was very insightful um and and then also they they said things like that sometimes they just feel numb and so some of the self harm we didn't talk about cutting there's there's youth that cut themselves in places where adults don't often see so the cutting is a way when they're feeling numb that they feel like that puts them back in touch with reality um, so that that's another thing for youth for parents to look out for especially females um, they'll cut themselves in places that are covered by clothes that people um, can't see um, and so that's really important um and again you know you can't always see the pain that people are going through you know mental health issues, are like an invisible disability, an invisible stigma. You don't always know what the other person is going through. You don't always know what's going on in their inside. And so, like be kind, be open, be caring. Those are the things that we talk about. And I'm sure for your mentors, that's something that you stress too. You know, that unconditional support, the non-judgmental listening. Uh, the openness to receiving what that person is saying. And that just gives them permission to to talk more about what's going on in their mind, feeling like they won't be judged, feeling that that you'll still care about them no matter what.
0: Thank you, Lori, um, for joining us today and for sharing about your work and tips for people um, when they're caring for young people and for themselves. Um, I know you shared a number of resources on this call and your phone number and, um, uh, crisis lines. So we'll be sure to put that in the show notes as well. Um, so that people can look to that and have those resources, um, as they need, but thank you for your work. We've, um, really appreciated being able to work with, um, you all and partner and thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. appreciate it.
0: Stay inspired. Stay inspired. Stay inspired. In this episode, as well as throughout some of the season, you probably heard us talk about the Youth Mental Health First Aid Training. This is a valuable training that's suitable for any adult working with young people. It teaches you how to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental illness and substance use disorders in young people. The training gives adults who work with youth the skills they need to reach out and provide initial support to children and adolescents who may be developing a mental health or substance use problem and help connect them to the appropriate care. If you're interested in learning more about the training or registering for one near you, you can find more information at www.mentalhealthfirstaid.org. You can also check out TMP's training information on our website. One final note. Thank you so much for listening this season. Youth mental health and wellness is such an important part of caring for, supporting, and mentoring young people. And we are thankful to our guests who took the time to have conversations with us and teach us. We hope that folks listening learned as well and had moments to reflect on how you interact with young people in your life, as well as your own mental health and wellness practices. We can't wait to share more discussions and introduce other experts in the field next season. Until then, please stay connected with TMP find us on social media, send us an email, or visit our website. We'd love to hear what you thought about the season, questions you have, or what you'd like to hear more about. Thank you again. Mentor Chat is written and hosted by Michelle Thomas and Ashley Wineland with the Mentoring Partnership of Southwestern Pennsylvania. It is produced by Pretty Easy Podcasts. Our music is Cheery Monday by Kevin MacLeod. Special thank yous to Kristen Allen and the Mentoring Partnership team. Thank you to our guests. For more information about us, mentoring, and this episode's topics, take a look at the show notes and visit the Mentoring Partnership's website at www.mentoringpittsburgh.org. Be sure to like and subscribe to Mentor Chat wherever you get your podcasts.